again, and Dobri Den. I'm Nathan with A History of Current Events, a podcast where I summarize the important history and key players behind today's headlines. This is the second of a two-part series on Ukraine. In the last episode, I talked about Ukraine's history, from its foundation in the Kievan Rus, through the age of the Cossacks, to the dominion of the Russian Empire. When I left off, the Ukrainian civil war had ended with a decisive victory for the communists, and the Soviet Union had just been established with the Bolshevik government of Ukraine as a founding member. The years that followed were dark ones for the Ukrainian people. While Ukraine enjoyed the status of nation under Vladimir Lenin, he died in 1924 and was replaced as leader of the USSR by Yosef Stalin. Now, Stalin had a bit of a paranoia problem. Like, if you were to bring the guy his nightly vodka and he caught you looking him in the eye, nine times out of ten, you'd find yourself in a gulag labor camp in Siberia the next morning. If you were lucky. In order to bring the Soviet Union up to snuff with the economies of the other major powers, Stalin launched the first of his infamous five-year plans, which dramatically overhauled sectors of the economy to boost production. This included the forced collectivization of agriculture, where private farmers were forced to give up their lands and work as laborers on large collective farms, the produce of which was collected and distributed by the state. Much of Ukraine was still made up of small-scale subsistence farmers, and they weren't too thrilled with the idea of giving up what little they had to the Soviets, so many of them resisted. Stalin feared anything that might escalate into a Ukrainian independence movement as the Soviet Union relied heavily on Ukrainian grain production, and this resistance to collectivization had the potential to stoke the still-warm fires of Ukrainian nationalism. This resistance could not go unpunished, and it would ease Stalin's paranoia to take the Ukrainians down a notch, or ten. He did so by starving them in what became known in Ukraine as the Holodomor, the Great Famine. Individual farmers who resisted collectivization were arrested, stripped of their lands and possessions, and deported to the farthest reaches of the Soviet Union to be worked to death in labor camps. Entire villages that resisted were blacklisted and surrounded by military forces who prevented anyone from entering to bring food or leaving to collect it. The inhabitants would eat anything available to them, dogs, cats, nuts, even grass, but many would still starve to death. The Soviets threatened to execute anyone stealing so much as a single stalk of wheat from the collectivized farms, the produce of which was collected by the central authority and sold abroad to fund the industrialization process rather than allowing it to be consumed by the Ukrainians who farmed it. As an added measure, Stalin sealed the borders of Ukraine, preventing any from fleeing the Holodomor. From 1932 to 1933, the Soviets extracted and sold enough food to feed 12 million people for an entire year, while the Ukrainians who farmed it starved. It is estimated that with one in every three villages blacklisted, 
Around four million Ukrainians died of starvation in the Holodomor, over 13% of the population. Meanwhile, the Soviets targeted the Ukrainian intellectual elite, eliminated the Ukrainian church hierarchy, and restricted the use of the Ukrainian language. To make up for the lost population, Stalin transplanted a large Russian population to Ukraine, and to further repress Ukrainian culture, he promoted the Russian language and greater Soviet identity. Talk of the Holodomor was restricted in the USSR, and the mere word famine was banned from use. Remember how I said Stalin had a paranoia problem? Well, he wasn't done. In 1937, he began the Great Purge in an attempt to eliminate any threats to his position from among the Soviet elite. High-ranking party members were tried in grand public tribunals, their confessions extracted through torture. The central government sent quotas to the local governments of potential criminals and rebels to round up so that they could be deported to Siberia to work in the gulags or simply executed. This included the peasant dissidents that survived the Holodomor, a number of Ukrainian writers, and 85% of the USSR's clergy. In all, between 700,000 and 1.2 million people were killed as part of the purge. In 1938, though, Stalin did a 180, claiming that the purge had gone too far, and to cap it off, he had the chief organizers of the purge executed. I guess you had to hand it to Stalin. If there was no one left alive in the Soviet Union, there would be no one to challenge his rule. A majority of the military high command was also removed during the Great Purge, and this proved detrimental to what hit the Soviet Union next. 1939 saw the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact signed between the USSR and Nazi Germany, dividing Poland between them and allowing the Soviets to incorporate former Austrian Ukraine into the Ukrainian SSR, while ensuring non-aggression between the two powers. The celebrations in Moscow did not last long, however, as Hitler turned around and non-aggressively invaded the Soviet Union in June of 1941. With Stalin's elimination of the military high command and his forces in disarray, they hastily retreated from Ukraine, destroying buildings, crops, food reserves, and mines to prevent them from falling into German hands. This didn't suck for the Germans nearly as much as it did for the Ukrainians, who depended on that food and infrastructure to live. At first, the Ukrainians in Galicia celebrated the German liberation, and many in Ukraine were optimistic about the release from the Soviet structure, especially from the detested collectivized farms. But their optimism immediately proved unfounded. I mean, what did you expect? These are the Nazis we're talking about. The Germans reorganized Ukraine into the Reichskommissariat Ukraine, and their occupation was brutal. The collectivized farms were not disbanded, but rather maintained by the Germans, and most of the food was seized for use in the war effort. Ukrainian industry was of little use to the Germans, so they made no effort to rebuild what the Soviets had managed to scuttle. 
more than two million Ukrainians were taken to Germany to be used as slave labor. And worst of all, the Nazi Einsatzgruppen worked with local groups to bring the Holocaust to Ukraine, killing more than 1.5 million Ukrainian Jews. Following the Soviet victory at Stalingrad, in which Ukrainian forces played no small part in helping to defeat the Nazis, the Red Army launched a massive counteroffensive, retaking Ukraine by October of 1943. The Ukrainian SSR was back, though with all the death and destruction caused by German and Soviet forces, there were far fewer Ukrainians around to celebrate, and another million died of famine as the war came to a close. Repatriated slave workers, Ukrainian nationalist resistance fighters, and anyone accused of polishing a German boot were deported to the Siberian gulags alongside German POWs. The Ukrainians just couldn't seem to catch a break. But with a collective sigh of relief from everyone everywhere on planet Earth, Josef Stalin died in 1953. He was succeeded by Nikita Khrushchev, the former first secretary of the Communist Party of Ukraine, and many Ukrainian officials who worked with him rose to high positions within the Soviet government. The next year, in a move that surprised pretty much everyone, Khrushchev gifted the Crimean Peninsula to the Ukrainian SSR to celebrate the 300th anniversary of the Treaty of Pereyaslav, which, as you may remember from the last episode, made Ukraine a vassal of the Russian Empire. The beginning of Khrushchev's rule was a breath of fresh air for the Ukrainians, who had just had the worst 30 years ever. He allowed the Soviet republics some leeway to determine their own policies and released almost all of the Gulag prisoners, hundreds of thousands of whom returned to Ukraine. A man named Petro Shalest became the leader of the Communist Party of Ukraine towards the end of Khrushchev's rule. Although he was a staunch communist, Shalest supported the revival of Ukrainian culture and literature and tolerated a healthy level of political dissidence, including petitions and demonstrations. A new post-Stalin generation came of age under his lighter hand, one that did not fear Moscow in the same way that their traumatized parents and grandparents did. But before Ukraine could truly assert itself, you had to guess there would be some backsliding. Shalest was just too tolerant a character to last in the Soviet Union. By the early 1970s, Leonid Brezhnev had consolidated power in Moscow, and his longtime associate, Volodymyr Shcherbitsky, became the leader of Ukraine while Shalest was stripped of all government positions. A major crackdown against Ukraine's political activists followed, the leaders of whom were arrested and their activities banned. Another wave of Russification commenced, with new restrictions on Ukrainian language and publication. Meanwhile, as in the rest of the Soviet Union, the Ukrainian economy was in marked decline. In 1986, the worst nuclear accident in history occurred at the Chernobyl power plant north of Kiev, exposing millions to unsafe radiation levels. Of course, the Soviet government downplayed the incident. In an attempt to pull the USSR out of the financial grave it had dug itself, 
Mikhail Gorbachev, the new leader of the Soviet Union, introduced perestroika and glasnost, policies of economic restructuring and social openness, while democratizing the Soviet state and decentralizing some of its power. The Ukrainian national movement began to openly coalesce once again, and by 1988, massive demonstrations were taking place in Kiev and other Ukrainian cities, calling not just for reform and human rights, but for Ukrainian independence. In 1989, Ukrainian was made the official language of Ukraine for the first time ever. Banned books were republished, environmental groups sprung up, religion saw a major revival, and as a cherry on top, Szczerbitsky resigned. The communists were losing their monopoly on power across the Soviet Union. The Verkhovna Rada, the democratically elected Ukrainian parliament, was reinstated, replacing the Supreme Soviet. The communists were forced to share the Rada with democratic reformers, and the Rada claimed sovereignty over Ukrainian affairs. While many hailed this and other such reforms across the Soviet Union as a victory for democracy and reform, it did not make Gorbachev particularly popular among the communist old guard. These old guard elements of the Soviet government launched a coup to remove Gorbachev in August of 1991, which, though it ultimately failed, sent a shockwave throughout the USSR. The Rada held an emergency session and, seizing the opportunity at hand, declared Ukraine an independent nation, with a solid majority of Ukrainians voting to ratify this in a popular referendum. Other SSRs followed suit, and on December 26, 1991, the Soviet Union was dissolved. Having never been a completely independent state, Ukraine had some hurdles to overcome. Upon its independence, Ukraine inherited the third largest supply of nuclear weapons in the world, which the United States and the Russian Federation worked to dismantle and transport to Russia with expedited shipping. Ukraine spent the next decade building up the bureaucracy of the state, its own military, and diplomatic relations with other countries. Its most important relationship, of course, was with Russia, and Ukraine's first two presidents, Leonid Kravchuk and Leonid Kuchma, worked closely with their Russian counterparts. The leaders of Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine created the Commonwealth of Independent States, a loose body to coordinate policy between the former Soviet republics. However, just as with Pereyaslav centuries before, the participating nations had very different ideas of what that meant. Kiev saw this as a form of, quote, civilized divorce, whereas Moscow sought to continue their dominance in the post-Soviet sphere. When they realized this, the Rada decided only to participate as an associate member. The largest hurdle to overcome was the economy. The Ukrainian economy had already been in decline before their independence, 
and the gradualist approach to privatizing state industry did not help matters, as it gave leaders a chance to snatch up those state enterprises and rob the people of the majority of the profit. Corruption and cronyism grew to dominate Ukrainian politics. On top of that, fuel prices were no longer subsidized by Moscow, and hyperinflation and poverty ensued. Many emigrated to the West for work, leading to a massive population decline in Ukraine. Still, quality of life, as far as freedoms went, improved for most Ukrainians, who were now allowed to access Western media, publications in their own language, a vibrant artistic scene, and religious freedom. By 1996, the economy had stabilized, and Ukraine began to join a number of Western institutions and sought to integrate themselves into the European system. This aggravated Moscow and ethnic Russians living in Ukraine's east who wanted Ukraine to remain within Russia's sphere of influence, known as the Near Abroad. Still reliant on Russian resources, this meant that Ukraine had to maintain a fragile balance between Russian influence and Western aspirations. The presidential election of 2004 saw Prime Minister Viktor Yanukovych, a pro-Russian candidate supported by incumbent President Kuchma and Russian President Vladimir Putin, face off against Viktor Yushchenko, a reform-minded and pro-Europe candidate promising to root out corruption. Late in the campaign, Yushchenko was poisoned with dioxin, quite possibly by government agents. Although he survived, his face was left badly disfigured. When the votes came in, Yanukovych was declared the winner of the election, but observers noted widespread voter fraud and intimidation, and half a million Yushchenko supporters flooded Kiev's Independence Square to protest in what became known as the Orange Revolution. Ukraine's Supreme Court found the election to have been fraudulent, and a new election made Yushchenko president of Ukraine. Unfortunately for Yushchenko, his term as president was fraught with difficulty and division, and, unable to live up to what he had promised, his support plummeted, even among members of his own party. Ukraine was also one of the country's worst hit by the 2008 Great Recession, with their economy contracting by 15%. This allowed Yanukovych to win the 2010 election with strong support in eastern parts of Ukraine. He almost immediately abandoned Ukraine's goal of joining NATO and worked to orient Ukraine with Russian interests. Ukraine had been set to sign a special association agreement with the European Union in November of 2013. But just days before it was to be signed, under pressure from Putin, Yanukovych scuttled the agreement. The Kievans, who had been looking forward to greater integration with Europe, were outraged. Tens of thousands flocked once again to Independence Square to protest what they saw as a betrayal by Yanukovych, calling for his resignation. When police forces attempted to violently disperse the crowd, the number of protesters swelled to hundreds of thousands. The Ukrainians were not about to be repressed again. As the situation escalated and Yanukovych signed a law restricting the right to assemble, the protests turned into violent riots. The movement spread to other cities in Ukraine, 
where protesters seized government buildings and clashed with police. By February of 2014, Yanukovych was getting desperate, and police forces began to shoot into the crowd in Kiev, killing dozens and injuring hundreds. Things were getting out of hand. In response to the escalating violence, the Rada voted to reduce the powers of the presidency and to impeach Yanukovych, charging him with mass murder. The Euromaidan protests, as they came to be known, had succeeded, and Yanukovych fled to Russia to escape prosecution. Not all of Ukraine was on board with the Euromaidan protests, though. In Crimea, pro-Russian protests broke out, occupying the seat of government in Sevastopol, and men in unmarked uniforms and Russian military equipment began to be seen securing key areas of the city. You see, Sevastopol is the home of the Russian Black Sea Fleet, a key strategic position, and the Russians weren't about to lose it to a country shifting towards Europe. Russian troops moved in to occupy the Crimean Peninsula and oversaw a widely criticized referendum in which 97% of Crimeans supposedly voted to join the Russian Federation. Putin formally annexed Crimea in March of 2014. The next month, tens of thousands of Russian troops massed on the border of Ukraine, while pro-Russian separatists took over government buildings in the eastern provinces of Donetsk and Luhansk, known collectively as the Donbass region. They were supported by more military units with unmarked uniforms and Russian equipment. The separatists declared Donetsk and Luhansk independent from the rest of Ukraine and began deploying Russian-supplied equipment to combat the Ukrainian military as it attempted to restore control. Ceasefire agreements signed in Minsk between the warring parties failed to actually stop the fighting, and the conflict in eastern Ukraine has claimed over 13,000 lives and displaced around one and a half million people. The conflict remains in stalemate to this day. In 2015, an immensely popular television sitcom called Servant of the People aired in Ukraine, starring Volodymyr Zelensky as the country's president. He must have done a pretty bang-up job in the role, because the Ukrainian people elected him as the real president of Ukraine in 2019. Not long after his election, he became embroiled in an American political scandal as President Donald Trump attempted to pressure Zelensky into digging up dirt on Trump's rival Joe Biden's son by withholding military aid approved by the U.S. Congress. While Zelensky declined to interfere in an American election and the aid was finally released to Ukraine a month after the phone call, that did not stop Trump from facing an impeachment trial as a result and the next year's election resulted in a victory for Biden. The stalemate in the Donbass War continued under Zelensky, but as of now, tensions have reached a new height. Western intelligence indicated that, over the course of the year 2021, Russian forces had been massing in Crimea, in the Russian territories on the border of Ukraine, and in Belarus, reaching around 100,000 troops, accompanied by tanks and heavy weaponry, by December. Russian officials claim that they pose no threat to Ukraine, but at the same time, they have listed a series of demands upon NATO in exchange for not doing what they definitely weren't going to do anyway. 
Hmm. These demands include NATO agreeing never to admit Ukraine into their ranks and pulling back all NATO forces from the Eastern and Central European countries that have joined the alliance since the fall of the Soviet Union, like Poland and the Baltic states, along with recognition of autonomy for Donetsk and Luhansk and American re-entry into the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. The first two requests, of course, being completely unacceptable, according to NATO leaders. Putin's boldness here reflects that of Xi Jinping's China in Taiwan. Internal political divisions in the United States, culminating in the January 6th insurrection and the political stalemate in Congress that has crippled the Biden administration, have given America's geopolitical adversaries the opportunity to flex their muscles and attempt to impose their will. In the case of Vladimir Putin, fearing that Ukraine will join NATO and the EU, which would pose both a military threat and a threat to Russian prestige, he is seeking through military pressure to force Ukraine either back under Russia's wing or to keep it so internally divided that it remains unable to shift westward. On top of that, dividing NATO and making the alliance look weak in their response would also further his goals. Talks with Putin have so far failed to reduce tensions, and the White House says they could attack at any time. And that's where things stand today. This has been one of the most complex topics I've covered so far, and if you have any questions about any of it, or would like to suggest the topic of the next episode, let me know in the comments, or shoot me an email at historyofcurrentevents at gmail.com. As always, Thanks for listening.